Thanks, Brent. Um, before I begin, I wanted to just mention uh, in, May, in May this coming month, 15th and 16th, we're going to be doing Praxis Conference in Houston, Texas at a church called Ecclesia, which is a neo-liturgical kind of church. Uh, the, pa- the, pa- the pastor is a uh, wonderful guy who spoke at our Praxis Conference when it was here last year. He's a Baptist background, and they're a neo-liturgical church, about 3,000 folks. It's a beautiful community, and uh, we'll be gathering about 30 different speakers from all over, um, pastors and uh, uh, teachers, um, uh, we'll be there from, um, from the academic world and just the pastoral world. People like Lynn Hybels will be speaking. And um, it, it's just some of the folks that you know from, you know, like Jonathan Martin and Dr. Green, et cetera. But we're going to be talking about spiritual formation. We're going to be talking about the use of spiritual directors. That's maybe a new idea to some of us. We're talking about we actually have some folks that are Episcopalian, Latin Catholic, et cetera, et cetera, Protestants that are in this context. Beautiful. We'll be talking about engaging in the pain of the world, how we can practically engage with our lives and our resources to help people that are under power all over the world. And also about ecumenism, talking about what are the hopes of the church moving toward each other from different streams. It's May 15th and 16th. We would love for you to join us. Uh, the cost is about 199 but for if you're a sanctuary and you, you get in for uh, 99 and uh, you can get some cheap hotels down there. It's going to be a cool place. And Houston, what the heck, it's cool. I think, isn't Houston cool, right? It's cool. Maybe. All right. Before we dig into our text, which is going to be Acts 3 and 4 today, um, I I wanted to reference a segment of John's gospel. It's a famous segment when um, Pilate is bringing Jesus forward in front of all of the people. And he says, behold the man. This is actually a scene that's uh, painted uh, famously in history that's entitled Eke... Uh, homo, which means behold the man. And so uh, I want to take this text because in our text in Acts, there's this same kind of thing that's going on. They're talking about this man. And uh, they're basically saying, Eke homo, behold this guy. There's something about beholding a person's life that speaks of the eternal that I would like for us to just peek at. But here in John first, in his gospel 19, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. The implication there is they shoved it on his head. And they clothed him with a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they'd slap him on his face repeatedly. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out, he's wearing in mockery this crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Eke homo, famously in the Vulgate, Latin Vulgate, behold the man, or look, here is the man. He's really just saying, check the guy out. I mean, this is who we're talking about. This is why we're gathered here. It's about this guy, Eke Homo. The text in Acts really does remind me of this moment because this fella in our text we're going to read gets healed. And they spend a good deal of time, two chapters, talking about this guy, the man, this man, over and over again uh, in a couple of chapters. Behold the man. So let's read it. Acts chapter 3. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. 
when he saw Peter and John about to enter, this guy asks them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man, this man, gave them his attention, expecting to get some money from him. And Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And, they, and he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God, transformed. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to this guy. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when people saw this, he said to the people of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let, them, let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this resurrection by faith and in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know, this guy, was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, this man, as you can all see. This man, mentioned throughout the text, is a specific man, but so interestingly, he remains nameless. He, he's the focus of all of this dialogue because he's not just a specific man. He's a representative man. He represents evidence to the assertion that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Eke homo. Behold the man who proves the resurrection is real. He said again in verse 15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this, and by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. He has been completely healed as you can see by the name of Jesus, the resurrected one. He's the resurrection man, right? The one who is put forth as evidence of the fact that Jesus is alive. It's so interesting that when they're trying to articulate to the people around them that Jesus is alive, that they're not arguing from some ideological perspective. They're not using Bible text and Bible text and Bible text to try to prove that the resurrection was true. They simply said, behold this guy. Eke homo, behold, the, this guy is proof that Jesus is alive and they're fixated on him for a couple of chapters talking about this man. In Acts 4, it picks it up again. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name did you do this? Did you heal this guy? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are now being asked, how was he healed? Then know this, 
and you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then in verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that they were astonished that they took note that these men had been with Jesus, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. They had nothing to say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. They conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that, he has, that they have performed a notable miracle. See, this man is a notable sign. His very life was not easy to be dismissed. He's proof. And he says, we cannot deny it. See, people may argue with you about text, and they may argue with you about ideas, but they're hard-pressed to argue with you about a changed life. And then one more text in verse 21 of the same chapter. Now it's been going for two full chapters. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man, this Eke Homo, the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Our resurrection man from Acts 3 and 4 becomes the representative person of the declaration of the resurrection. And I think that the text suggests to us that who the church member is, is the resurrection man or the resurrection woman. That somehow the greatest proof of the resurrected Christ, the fact that he's alive today, is not our argumentation. It's not our getting in people's faces and arguing about ideologies or whatever it is you want to argue about, but it's literally by us stepping forward and saying, have you seen this gal? Eke homo, have you seen this guy? Or, or just watch. Watch my life. Watch my life over time. Watch and see if you can't discover something going on that's more than just human. In other words, this is how we're witnesses. It's not that we shouldn't have ways to describe theologically what's going on, but we should never trust those ways. In our man's case in Acts 3, the man exemplified the resurrection of Jesus vis-a-vis a healing miracle. I love miracles. How many of you like miracles? Right? Or answered prayers. Sweet. I love that. I wish I'd see more of that. Back in the 70s, there was a gal in our little Assembly of God church in Nielsville, Wisconsin, where I grew up, and the Squealsville, I called it. But anyway, uh, in Nielsville, Wisconsin, and our, our church was about 100 people, and uh, she was a gal that, that uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And, and you know, back then, it was just a little more complicated. Well, it's always complicated, but they didn't have the kinds of understanding they have now. And uh, she went in, as, as, she, as the doctor tells her, and, and, she, and the doctor said, You're, this, this is not, probably not going to win this. And so she said, well, why would I do chemo? And it was pretty strong back then. And she said, he said, well, we just, we just hold off, you know, maybe give you a few more months. And she said, I don't know if I want to do that. They talked, with her, they talked with her husband. She had a couple of kids, three kids, I think. And uh, they decided not to do it. She said, I'll just, I'd rather just be as, uh, feeling as healthy as I can and then just, just die. And so she, they decided not to get treatment. And so she quit her job because she wanted to be around the kids. Her husband worked 3 to 11 shift. And uh, so she said <laughs> she, she would get the kids to bed, and then, and, and then she'd wait for her husband to get home. They would want to spend time together. And there was three or four hours by the time the kids went to bed before he came. So she'd watch some TV and then 
turn off a couple of shows after she watched a couple of shows. And then she said she started just learning to read the Bible and just reading the Bible. thought, I'm going to see God soon, so I better get to know him better. So, you know, remember read one of those books? Somebody said, have you read my book? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you know, Habakkuk, right? Comes out to you, did you read my book? <laughs> anyway, so, so the point is, is that uh, she, um, she said that she started falling in love with the Bible. And after a while, she said she stopped watching so much TV, and she just she said it became voraciously hungry for the Bible. She's telling, and and she said it, it, it was about seven months had passed, and her husband looked at her and said, "How are you feeling?" She goes, "Actually, I'm feeling really good." He, he said, "You're really looking good," and so they said, "Well, maybe we should go back and see what's going on here because I'm supposed to be dead here pretty quick," and. Uh, <laughs> I love this story. So anyway, she, she goes back to the doctor about a month later. So she's like eight months now. Uh, and, and the doctor examines her. Can't find anything wrong. And I knew them. I mean, up until we left. I mean, in the early, in late 90s. Uh, you know, she'd been alive for another 25, 30 years. Never, completely cancer-free. I mean, don't you love those kind of stories? I mean, I think they're so cool. Or just, just every little kind of story where you hear somebody, God answering a prayer or uh, an opportunity that seems odd, and you go, whoa, I just love that. I think it just demonstrates he's alive, that God's at work in our world, right? This is cool. I remember the first uh, financial miracle Gail and I ever had. We never thought of asking God for things like natural. They seem kind of selfish, you know, to ask God to help us financially. It just seems selfish to us. And then we started facing, you know, the Gospels. Jesus cared about the lost lamb or the lost coin or, you know, making sure that the people that were hungry, the hunger pangs of the crowd were touched and fed. And so I remember we started thinking, you know, maybe God really wants to help us. And we were just starting on in marriage. I think we were both making 60 or 80 bucks a week, you know, it was just, you know, back in the 70s. And we had a house, a little, it wasn't a house, it was, a, it was an apartment with slanted ceilings up, up in, a, in a tall house, and, and we paid 80 bucks a month. And so we said, well, you know, maybe we could, we could ask God for a house, right, which seemed like a big stretch. And, uh, and so we decided, what can we afford? And we figured it out on paper. We thought, well, we could afford $125 a, a month. And so we went to the paper and look for houses. They were all back in the day. I mean, this sounds so cheap now, but it was expensive then. You know, 250 300 for rental houses and stuff. <clears throat> and so we said, we said, okay, honey, let's just ask God for a house that's $125. And so we said, God, and we prayed together, Lord, we just ask you, would you bring a house to us that, you know, that, that we can afford, a $125 house? And so we watched the paper after we prayed. It was about four or five days later in the paper. Pow! House. Uh, $125, you know, call this number. And so we went over to the house, and it was this cutest little house on 7th Street. It was so cute. And we looked at it, and we said, we want, to have, we want this house. And we didn't know quite what to do, so we did a Jericho march around the house, you know. <laughs> anyway, if you know what that is, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and we called Mrs. Olinsky and we went down to see her. She was about 85 or 90. She was a, you know, an elderly gal. And uh, we sat down with her and, and she goes, oh, and you know, we're telling her our story. We said, well, we would love to rent your house. And she said, oh, that's, I've had so much response. You know, she's telling us from people. And right when we're sitting there, this phone rings, her phone rings. She gets up and she gets on the phone. She goes, hello. And the guy says it was a, it was a professor from the local uh, uh, two-year university thing, and the junior college. And he was talking to her. We couldn't hear him, but she was going, oh, 
you'd offer me that much? I didn't think I could get that much for the house. You know, she was, so apparently he offered her like 170 for whatever it was that he offered her. And so she goes, she stops for a minute. She goes, well, she said, no, you know, I have this young couple and they're just such a lovely couple. I'm going to give it to them. I'm going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying, I didn't think, well, my faith has got me a miracle. You know what I thought? I thought like God just leaned over and just just kissed me. My first provision kiss from God. It was just exactly what we needed. It was exactly what we'd asked God to do, right? A $125 house. So I love that kind of thing. I love it when God does stuff in our lives, when God does miracles in our lives. It's one of the ways that it displays the fact that he is raised from the dead. In fact, Many times it validates the gospel. This is out of Hebrews 2. It says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is when we can say, look what God has done. Behold what he's done in our lives, right? They put the man with the miracle on parade in the book of Acts. What's easy to say here, if you're not careful, is, yeah, well, I don't have any big miracles I can point to in my life, so I guess I don't behold me, right? Don't look at me. But, but understand, there's other ways to attest to the resurrection besides miracles. In fact, we look at a guy named Timothy is one of the guys that works directly with Paul. And Paul is telling him in 1 Timothy 5, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So obviously, they weren't putting Timothy on parade and say, look at this guy's healed. They were putting Timothy on and saying, this poor, poor this guy, we're going to pray for him. <laughs> right? He was having frequent illnesses. And, and so healing wasn't Timothy's way of revealing Christ. And yet Paul says to him, you can, you can, you're a leader, stand up and change the world. Make them see that God is alive. And he says in, in the chapter right before this, 1 Timothy 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in how you love, in how you trust. There's something about how you trust Timothy that just captures the imagination of people. Your purity. It just makes people go, look at you in a way and go, what, what's going on there? He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and preaching and teaching. So he had this gift. He said, don't neglect your gift, which is given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. There's, you some of you have some really deep, wonderful gifts that as you just walk through them and live through them, God is, made, is shown to be alive. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Okay, homo, behold this guy. Check this person out. Check her out. Watch the progress that's happening. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and people that are around you, the people that hear you. See, he, he let the word of God change the way he lived. He actually had spiritual progress. And because he did it, that's how Jesus was made to be known alive through Timothy's life. Maybe that's exactly how you can be the one we point to and say, behold her, behold him. Maybe it's just simply that you are kinder this year than you were last. Or maybe you're more patient than you were or more helpful than you were. Or maybe you're growing in hope. And we can say, hey, look. Look at this guy. Look what's happening in his life. 
The great apostle Paul was a resurrection man. And we read about him and you scratch your head. Because listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking about his life, his everyday life. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He hated the boasting thing, I, I, but he was trying to make a point. He says, I have worked uh, harder, much harder, been in prison more frequently. You ever met any somebody says, well, yeah, I've been frequently in prison. <laughs> really? <laughs> right? <laughs> been flogged more severely. That's interesting. I'd been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. You know, by this time you start saying, is there some secret sin in your life? <laughs> I mean, right? He says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I'm running you know, for my life. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger from the bandits, in danger from my own people that should be getting along with me. I'm in danger with the Gentiles, in danger with the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, in danger with false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. Give me this day our daily bread. Maybe you should trust that a little more. Right? I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure and the concern of all the churches. Who is weak that I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Wow, is that anti-American or what? I want to boast about my weakness. This is how I'm showing Jesus is alive. That I'm willing to face whatever with him. Not that everything changed. Not that I almost got beaten, but Jesus protect me. Not that I was almost got whipped and stoned or shipwrecked, but just at the last minute, the ship didn't wreck. His testimony was, it wrecked, but I lived. See, we're talking, I mean, talk about having a bad year, right, or a series of years. When they say homo about Paul, behold the man, they were pointing to a man with lots of trouble. So much so that one might suggest he had very little resurrection going on. How many of you look at your troubles and think, I'm no example of the resurrection. I'm no example of Christ being alive. But what if that's not true? I mean, Paul had tons of trouble, but, but I think how he demonstrated the resurrection is how he responded to the trouble. We see him in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret. Some of us need to learn the secret to glorify God, to show the resurrection. I've learned the secret. What's the secret? Being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I used to speak that text over and over in my prayer life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which usually was a victor comment in my head. I'm not going to be put down. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to win every time, not realizing that Paul was actually saying, I can do all things in Christ, which means that I can win through Christ and I can lose because of Christ. I can lose. I can lose my job. I can get a job. I can lose my health. I can get my health. I can lose my friendships. I can gain some friendships. I, irrespective.
perspective of what life throws at me can do all things because he's alive. Let me, if, if we want our kids and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers to see Jesus, maybe it's more than just about words. Maybe it's about them seeing us live well. Maybe it's about just living in a way that creates the question. Let me point to one more, more way that all of us can be resurrection people. This is Acts 6. In those days, there were a number of disciples were increasing Hellenistic Jews among them complained because the Hebraic Jews, Hellenistic Jews were those who were from the outside of the Israel and they were coming in, they were staying because of faith. And, and the, so the Hebraic Jews were those that lived in Israel and there's this complaint going on because there was a, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So we're talking, about, we're talking about something very menial, just distributing food. So the 12 gathered the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It's not that it's not worthy, it's just we need to do this. Brothers and sisters, they said, choose seven men from you, among you, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. I love this because it's so odd. They're not just looking for people that can do the menial task. They're looking for people full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom to do a menial task. Because what it seemed that they were saying was that no task is menial. They were to bring the best that we are and the power of God and the wisdom of God and what we understand into the menial tasks of our engagement with each other. And he says, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased everybody. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius. Don't, don't name your kids. And Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented them to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Again, just notice, they ask people who are full of God to do things that seem menial. This is the origin of what's known historically as the office of the deacon or the deaconess. This is where all leaders are supposed to start. That those who feel, even those who are pastors or other kinds of leaders, should always have the deacon or the deaconess heart. Where we're willing to bring everything that we are to do whatever needs to be done and to do it with joy. It's this, this kind of notion of that, that we give clear witness to the resurrection of Christ when we are willing to do whatever. We tend to just call this volunteerism. Sometimes I think that's a very disparaging word, a low, like it's nothing word. Um, the role of the deacon or the deaconess is really about rolling up your sleeves and, and giving a rip about the work of, of the body of Christ, even the menial stuff. We have, gladly, glad to say, we have some wonderful volunteers, deacon, deaconess type folks here in Sanctuary. We don't often applaud you, which I wish, you know, we need to do a better job at that. But there's a full 20 some odd percent of you that jump in at different areas. We'd love to see more of you involved. Um, truth is we have kind of a, a culture that, that has always drawn people that have, are kind of burnt stones. You know, they've been in other contexts oftentimes where they were so deeply involved and sort of burned out. And they come here and they love it that we're not a culture of guilting. 
where the minute you walk in, we're trying to make you do stuff, and we don't guilt you into doing stuff. If you're involved deeply in volunteerism or not, we don't. We just celebrate you. We're not after what you will do for the community. We just want to celebrate you, and I think that's what we want to continue to be. It's, so we've kind of created this Copacabana culture, you know, where everybody just kind of comes in, you know, we sit, sit, sit by the pool and drink, you know, pina coladas and, uh, and just, you know, maybe go out and dance on the beach. You know, we just kind of chill out, right? And that's who we are. And, 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 I, and there's nothing really wrong with that. I mean, I, I think, though, there comes a season when you need to re-engage, and you've gotten your rest, and it's time to step up, or you end up losing ground spiritually because there's something about being a resurrection person that demands you to own part of the burden of a community of faith. There's a text in Psalm 110. It says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. So sometimes when you're, when you're in a place where the power is reengaging in your life, one of the natural impulses is going to be, what can I do? How can I be involved? And when you're involved, the, the person that's this volunteer, a resurrection person, a person who's an Ake homo, we can say, behold this woman. Behold this man. That kind of person that, that's displaying the resurrection in that kind of context. The reason we can do this is because they're doing what they're doing is under the Lord. They're not doing it to get brownie points. They're not doing it to earn an eagle's badge or you know, a, um, uh, some kind of Boy Scout badge or something like that. They're doing it because they just want to honor God. And what happens is it keeps you from getting burned out. I love the story of Jesus when he is, he's, he's, he's going along. He's pretty hungry. He sends in the, uh, the, uh, the disciples to go in and get some... Uh, some sandwiches from Arby's, and uh, he's, he's out there, he's talking to this lady, the woman at the well, you know, and, and, and talking with her about stuff, and they come back with their stuff, and, um, uh, and, and when they bring the food to him, he goes, ah, I have meat that you know not of, and somebody, they go, what, did somebody bring McDonald's, what happened here, and, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 my meat is to do the will of the Father, there's something satiating about knowing I'm doing what God asked me to do, see, you, you don't burn out when you do stuff as unto God. And you can do it over and over again consistently. You're not looking for the applause of men, the praise of people. You're doing it as unto God, and it keeps you fresh and alive. Um, you also face volunteerism with this kind of, this kind of person faces volunteerism with a kind of seriousness that you'd bring to a job you were getting paid for. If you're a volunteer and pay would change your attitude or pay would change your consistency, you're not a resurrection volunteer. Money should mean nothing in this context. It's something that you're just doing with all your heart, but you're doing it in a way that you're as faithful as if you were getting paid, where you keep your word and you show up when you say you're going to show up. This is the deacon's heart. This is the man or the woman full of the Spirit, and there's so many of you like this, and we applaud you. Here are some wins for you in this. It frees you from being a sloth. (laughs) And that's one of the seven deadlies. At least you got one off the list. Right? It's less work. It also, it also helps, here's another win, it helps you connect with others. Friends are hard to find. Have you figured that out, that how hard it is to get friends? That when you do volunteerism in a community, it helps you to connect with people in a way that you just didn't imagine, particularly if you get involved with something that there's actual, a lot more depth of activity that's going on, children's ministry or the family stuff. And there's just, it's just a way for you to connect. And, and all of a sudden, the church you attend becomes your church. You say, this is my church, because all of a sudden you're engaged and connected. It's beautiful. And it's also just flat refreshing, right? So if you think it's time for you to put down your pina colada and roll up your sleeves around here, we want to invite you to do it. 
In fact, this morning they, they asked this weekend if we could put out some volunteers because I'll be talking about this. We're going to put out, uh, there's a volunteerism um, table out there that explains all the different areas you can get involved with. We want to invite you to jump in. Uh, a lot of you know this is timely because a lot of you know that our volunteers, many of them are college students. We love and appreciate our student population here. But in the summer, you know, they head home, a lot of them go to work. Um, and we have a lot of need, particularly in the children's area. So if, if you'd like to be helpful, uh, would some of you please consider stepping up? We'd so appreciate that. So here's my challenge. God is calling every Christian to be that guy, that gal, ecke homo, that we can point to and say, behold, this is a person that is showing Jesus as alive. So trust God for miracles in your life. Pray for people. You say, does it happen every time? No, but that's not our problem. We're supposed to pray, not make it happen. Keep praying. I, I love the story of John Wimber with his, he read in the Bible, he's, he's, he's passed away now, but this was back when he started, uh, what was the name of the community they started? Um, vineyard, the Vineyard Group. So he, had, he was a Baptist guy, and he, 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 uh, he read in the scriptures, James, where he said, call the elders of the church, and they're to pray for people, laying hands on them, and the prayer of the faith would save the sick, the Lord would raise them up. And he, he said they would, every time somebody was sick, he'd call all those elders together, they'd go over and pray for the guy, or the gal, and he said for two years, all of them died. He said, we just said, well, we're just going to do it. You know, the truth is, no matter what miracles you get, you're, you're going to die, right? I mean, eventually, you're all going to die. Anyway, um, <laughs> so he said, all of a sudden, after two years, nothing. We just were faithful to do it. There was a miraculous healing. See, so just pray for people. Ask God to do something for people. I do, even people that, that don't seem to have any faith. And whenever I find them in a situation that something's going on, I always pray with them. And it shocks them. I, I'm sitting at the, in a bar in the lake, you know, because the bar is in the lake and the meals are all together at the lake, right? So we're there with our family and it's in the middle of a bar. Loud music is playing. This guy is talking to me. He says he's got cancer. And I said, you have cancer? We're kind of having to yell at each other. You have cancer? He, I said, man, would you like me to pray for you? He said, I would love that. He's thinking when I go home. I said, okay, and I slammed my hand, and he looked at me, and I pulled him in, and I started praying for him. See, I love that stuff. Pray for people. Something might happen. Right? Or at the very least, they're touched in their hearts. Okay, so pray for miracles. Be like Timothy and grow in your faith. Be kinder in six months than you are right now. Be more compassionate in six months than you are right now. If you're the same as you were, you're... you're You're a slug. <laughs> Live in contentment that transcends circumstances like Paul. Quit being a whiner. And then uh, embrace the role of a deacon or a deaconess if you can. Let's prove the resurrection happened by being with the resurrection people. Amen? Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.